Our scripture this morning comes from Genesis 9, verses 18 through 29. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. The word of the Lord. Well, welcome to Grace and Peace Church. If I haven't met you yet, I'm Vincent Hoppy. I'm the pastor here. If you have any questions, you could ask me. So one of the questions that comes up is like, why does Grace and Peace exist? And Grace and Peace exists because we believe that there is sadness and brokenness in the world in which only the gospel of Jesus Christ can actually bring lasting and restorative healing. And so that is what we're about. That's what we are going to, we're going to beat that drum and we hope that you follow us in bringing uh, the healing power of the gospel to every broken place. And how we do that is by connecting with God, we do that in worship, by caring for one another, by uh by the position that we have been healed by God's grace, we go and we care for other hurting people whom you may be sitting next to. And lastly, we cultivate in this city, is what we do. What happened there? Uh, wow, irrigation. Excellent. Thanks. I was being all serious, Andy. You had to kill my vibe. Huh? Yes, uh, I, I have a... just. Just so you know, there is a $400 bottle of Purell here. That's what is going on in the black market. Yes, it does have over 60% alcohol uh, content by volume. Um, so, so, cool. It even kills viruses, I guess. I don't know how this, you know, antibacterial soaps kills vi. Wait, viruses aren't bacteria? Don't get me started. Anyway, <laughs> anyway. So today we're back in Genesis, and we're having a third sermon on the, on the person of Noah. And of course, we read today, and you're like, wow, that's cheerful, Vince. Uh, <laughs> what, a, what a text that you are bringing us to today. All the glories of God. Praise to the Lord. Um, and, and you're probably saying, why in the world is this even in the Bible? And so we're going to explain why. But uh, are you the type of person that looks for signs? You know, you look for signs. You want to know, uh, you like to read the tea leaves. You take fortune cookies maybe at a greater value than uh, just a piece of paper in a little almond crisp cookie. And, or you, you kind of read things and you're like, God is speaking to me. This is a sign. There's a lot of people that read signs this way. 
And the question is, what are signs for and why are they important in the Bible? Now, I will tell you this. I am not talking like a sign from the movies. Uh, You know, God is telling me to do this. The Bible talks about signs not like Mel Gibson looking looking through crop circles with aliens and then, uh, you know, uh, memories and dreams of what his wife had said and aluminum foil hats. Uh, If you haven't watched the movie Signs, I highly recommend it. It's wonderful. Uh, no, the Bible, tell, the Bible signs and the signs in the Bible tell you the truth about a relationship. And in particular, the signs that it is talking about is about this story, and in our episode, just prior to this, and then humanity in the form of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth is going to put this sign to the test. God makes a commitment never to wipe out life from the earth again, and the sin and and he wasn't going to and sin wasn't going to interrupt this commitment that God gives to Noah, his offspring, and every living creature that's with him. God gives him a sign, and that's the rainbow. That's where we're at. But what are your favorite signs? Uh, I'll be honest. One of my favorite signs is the golden arches. Every time I see it. It evokes memories of opening a little cardboard box, a Happy Meal, and taking out a weird-looking bun that could have been plastic. It could have tricked me. I don't know. And I loved every second of it, and I got the Happy Meal toy. And so every time I see the sign of the golden arches, no matter how much... The news has scarred me with stories of the golden arches. The substance of what I remember is the goodness of a Happy Meal. And not much has changed since then. I love it. Every time I see that sign, I remember the substance behind it. Delicious, greasy, salty, fast food. I'm dying on the road. I see the golden arches. Salvation! You know, and so that's what happens. But signs are part of our everyday life, aren't they? They're part of our everyday experience, and they're also a part of our spiritual experiences. One of my favorite parts of every wedding I do is the exchanging of rings, and had the pleasure of doing that recently. It seems like a small token, but when you realize what had just happened, people had made vows They made promises to each other. It is quite significant in the fact that the sign will last longer than the words. The words will fall out and you will no longer hear them. But the substance of those words is encapsulated in a little tiny ring. You know, in fact, without the words though, the sign is absolutely substanceless. But when we make those vows, promises of love, even to the point of death, these little tokens are signs reminding the wearer of the promises they've made. I can remember in anger hitting it against a table and realizing at that very moment the promises and vows I had made. Every time a wife uh, is driving, And the sun comes through the windshield and she sees it sparkle in her eye. She should be reminded of the promises, the vows she has made. And in our story, just prior to what we had read, we read that God 
every time he sees a rainbow, will remember the promise he made to relent from wrath so that this earth will not be destroyed anymore. The rainbow reminds him of his promise, a covenant. He binds himself to those whom he promised himself to. He binds himself, puts himself under oath. He leaves himself vulnerable to his own promise. God himself voluntarily constrains himself. And the thing compelling him is gracious love. The bow mentioned in verse 13 is undoubtedly a rainbow, but it also doubles for a warrior's bow. They don't have two different words. They only have one word. It is a warrior's bow. And for it to be hung up like that is like a warrior coming home and putting a bow on the wall and hanging it up, saying, my wrath is complete. My justice has been poured out. It is finished. And so no longer will the flashing arrows of God's justice come down to punish all humanity. It will no longer do that. But if humanity comes to the point that justice must come down, God will be the one on the hook. It doesn't mean that every storm is to be interpreted as God's judgment, but we must realize that the world is out of sorts and must be put back to rights. You see, the rain falls on the just, the ones who do good, and the unjust. God's grace is extended to both, is extended to both just and unjust. And the sign of that grace, undeserved mercy, is a sign in the clouds, and we see it after every rain. On this side of the cross and resurrection, we too have signs of God's love, don't we? We do. Of how he has bestowed his grace on us in baptism, and how, we, how, we, how he confirms our interest in him in the Lord's Supper. One initiates... The other confirms. And immediately after this episode of grace, though, he gives the sign. Uh, humanity, as you would know, on our own strength, does what we tend to think we would normally do, right? We stumble. We fall. And so we have a second episode of the fall. Humanity threatens and tests God's patience and promises with an episode filled with shame. We too will leave this place and will battle with shame and shaming others. Shame is defined as a painful emotion caused by consciousness of guilt, shortcoming, or impropriety. It's an overwhelming feeling of exposure, insecurity, fragility, and fear. You want to know what that feeling's like? It's like that uh, naked dream that you have at like school. You know, where you're like you look, you, you realize, oh my gosh, I'm at school and I'm naked. That's the feeling of shame. And you're like, ah, that sounds a lot like anxiety. Because it is. Because shame and anxiety accesses the same part of our brain and our habits and our psychology and our physiological makeup to initiate our fight or fight flight or fight response. Has the same effect on us. That's why we could be shamed and we could feel lots of stress and anxiety and worry. We're always afraid that people are going to find us out. And so what we do is that we work really hard to cover it up. You put pressure on your kids to be the best, to go to college, to do really well, in order that they can cover up some of your own shortcomings. As long as my kids go to Stanford, I'll feel better about myself. Your spouse, though, could always be walking on eggshells. If they always have to perform, they always have to get it right, that even if they make a little tiny uh, mistake, 
a mistake of common sense. They feel like you're going to come and eat them. And they're afraid of that. And we feel this intensely. Maybe you prevent, preemptively shame yourself. You make jokes about yourself in order to take the edge off of the criticism you're about to feel. And every time we feel that feeling, our eyes dilate, palms start to sweat, the hair on the back of our neck raises up. It's fight or flight. That's how we feel. And shame does it to us. But the story tells us this. Your shame doesn't stop God's grace. But shame can make you a slave. Your shame doesn't stop God's grace. But shame can make you a slave. Uh, Before we go further, I'm going to need to take an apologetic station break. Uh, One of the hits against Christianity, and rightfully so, is its uh, connection with slavery and how people have used the Bible to justify uh, slavery and also things like unbiblical and unjust uh, actions such as segregation. They are grievous practices. And we have to confess that this is part of our history. This is part of the Christian church. This has happened. Our brothers and sisters have done this. And we have to seriously repent from our, our community sins. And in repenting and in confessing it, we are uh, able to show, demonstrate God's grace and demonstrate that it is stronger than shame. So we don't hide it and you know, put it under a rug. No, we need to talk about it. But to, to those who would ask, like, come on, Christianity? Like, slavery? Come on, man. And in fact, the Bible even promotes it. But So how, how do we address that here? Because the reason why it would come up is because we see in this cursing, it says that uh, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. And a good translation would just be servant, servant. Like he is the epitome of servants, which you would understand as slavery. He's to be a slave in the house of Shem and Japheth. And so, how does this work? Well, one, what do we say? In this story, we don't have God speaking. Notice God never speaks. Never speaks. But we do have a patriarch pronouncing a prophecy through a narrator that serves a way of describing the current situation of the audience. The audience is on another side, the other side of the Exodus, after having been slaves to children of Canaan, to children of Ham, They are now moving into a land where there's the Canaanites in whom God had had driven many of them out and many of them are still sitting there in Canaan waiting to fight. And in in this, they are to become servants to the house of the people of Shem. Notice it is just describing. It is not prescribing or prescribing what to do. So that's the second thing. And three, slavery during that period is not chattel slavery. Chattel slavery is the taking or kidnapping of a person and then buying or selling them as property. That is not what is going on throughout the Bible. But what we see in the Bible 
because uh, kidnapping is actually outlawed. It's called man-stealing is what it's called. What a fun translation. But rather, uh, persons could give themselves as a slave to another person to work off a debt. And it was also a reasonable way to stave off destitution. So instead of becoming a lame beggar in the street, you could be protected as a slave in the household of someone else. And so it was a valid way and a valid state for anybody to live in, although it wasn't as it was meant to be. Notice it is just describing and not prescribing. Finally, this wasn't the spiritual destiny forever for these people. Throughout scripture, you see Canaanites from the line of Ham being examples of faith. And in the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts, you see that God's grace in Jesus is stronger than the sin and story of shame. So how does shame cause slavery? Well, shame constrains us into a never-ending spiral of covering up. This story acts as a second fall. The focus turns from Noah as the head to his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, in which we find encouragements for faithful living in the persons of Shem and Japheth and, in, and the person who is a cautionary tale, Ham. The father of Canaan. First off, who names their son Ham? I mean, like, like I, I guess I get it. You know, it's, it's pork, it's unclean, you know, right along there with bacon, which, praise the Lord, it is no longer unclean. We can, we can eat those things. Wonderful. Great. And so, anyway, Canaan is also the son through whom the whole inhabitants of the promised land will be fathered through. So let's look at how Sham gets a hold of both Noah and his household, and especially the person of Ham. So Sham of Noah. Noah begins to be a man of the earth or soil, in, in according to the ESV, which I think is a poor translation. It should have just been dirt or earth. Very similar to the way we would have understood Adam to be from the earth. He was taken out of it. And so it invokes the first creation where man is from the earth. And the narrator gives us a hint of something amiss whenever we see that Noah drank wine and became drunk. And the audience is like, oh no, I know exactly what that feels like. And so, now the Bible is generally positive about drinking wine. It's included in offerings in Numbers 15, 5 through 10. It says that God accepts wine as an offering. Here's a fun one for you. God drinks wine. We also see that in John chapter 2. We see that God in, ce- in the celebratory mode in the person of Jesus Christ makes abundant overflowing wine. In Psalm 104, the psalmist says that wine gladdens the hearts of men. But we also see cautions. Proverbs 31 it's not just about women. There's a little excerpt about there about alcohol and kings. You know that? It's a Proverbs 31 woman. You need to be a Proverbs 31 leader or something like that. And so you need to watch out for drinking alcohol. Why? Because it'll, it'll get into you and it'll take you away. It can consume you. Or as Colossians, two say, or Colossians 5 says, do not get drunk off wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because wine can fill you and take you down roads that you did not want to go. And so it's a cautionary tale here. And so, we see that Ham, in a moment of opportunity, finds his father in a vulnerable position. 
And instead of doing the right thing, he does what comes out of his heart. And it displays his deviancy, his nature. And what does he do? It says that he looked upon him and that he goes outside and says, Hey, yo, brothers, check it. And the brothers are like, oh, ham, come on, man. And so nakedness, though, here in the Bible for Noah is coincidental with shame. We see that in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. In Genesis 2, we see in the innocence of Adam and Eve that they were naked and not ashamed. Then in Genesis 3, we see that they see that they were naked and that they became ashamed. And so it is this deep vulnerability in Isaiah. The nakedness is just translated as shame. So shame is that feeling of exposure of deep vulnerability. Some commentators have suggested that in exposing his nakedness, oh, you know, ham, he was doing something sexually deviant, like catching his father in a lewd act, or maybe he did a lewd act on his father, or maybe he slept with Noah's concubine. Well, I think those commentators have been reading a little too much Sigmund Freud, uh, the text seems to be uh, to purposely be vague in this occasion. And what's in view here isn't what Ham had did in this one single moment, but this one single moment highlights an entire nature of who Ham is, what kind of person he is. He's deviant, he's rebellious, he's selfish, only looking out for himself because he will expose the nakedness of his father and say, come check this out, look how funny this is, laugh at me, I'm a great person. He does it for his own gain. In this case, the deviant and dishonorable actions of Ham bring shame upon the family. And the bondage that Noah feels is the same bondage that we all feel. That need to cover up our shame. The shame that Noah experiences is one of illegitimate shame. Noah experiences what we would understand as illegitimate shame. It is a shame that is part of his being that is beyond his control. A lot of that illegitimate shame maybe that you feel is because of the family you grew up in. Or you look in the mirror and you say, I don't like this thing about myself. A lot of that's beyond your control. You're, sometimes you're worried about the car, the car that people will see you in. Do you know, I, I drive like probably one of the most ugly beaters I have ever seen. And every once in a while, I'm embarrassed to be seen in it. I have a cracked windshield. Why? I, I don't, just don't feel like getting it fixed. You know, $200, $200 could be used in better ways. But anyway, so sometimes I'm ashamed of that. I also have little shameful things about myself that I don't want to tell people, I, you know, about my person. You know, I have a weird one. I have overactive sweat glands. That's a weird one. Now you all know. And so hey, there, there goes that shame. So, so we're, we feel ashamed of our family upbringing, the ways we've been bullied growing up. And then we go about and we start to shame ourselves beyond what our actual transgressions require after we sin. So we start to shame ourselves like maybe we actually sin, we actually cause transgression. And we say, oh, no real Christian would have ever have done that. No real mother would ever treat their children this way. No real husband would ever say that to their spouse no, we start to berate ourselves and we start to spiral down this pit of shame. And so one of the things that we do, and the Christians are really good at this, like as soon as we mess up in sin, we start to have this little illegitimate shame that starts to spiral out of control. You mess up, you're like, no person 
No real Christian would have ever said this. And somehow you are inferior, and then you start to feel like God doesn't actually love you, and you start to spiral out of control in shame. And, when, and this is like what leads to a lot of our depression. I start to look in the mirror. I'm like, this is what's making me so sad. I'm not, it, we, could even be, we could even shame ourselves for feeling depressed. Like, pff, Christians shouldn't be depressed. Why are you depressed? Knock, you know, knock it off, Vince. And so that's what we do. You know, so don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that if it isn't in our control, then it isn't sin. What I'm, I, I'm not boiling down sin to just rather transgressions or just actions. Rather, I'm saying like the Westminster Confession states, that sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God, and to which you're probably saying, nerd alert, homeboy just quoted the Westminster Confession. What does that mean? Any, trans, any, any want of conformity to... Okay, so a bunch of nerds got together in 1617, cool, and they put together this confession. What they're trying to say, that this is anything in our being that is not in accord to the way things ought to be. And in the same way, when we talk of like any transgression of the law of God, that this is any act volitionally that transgresses the law of God. And so... That's what we have. So anything in our person that isn't the way it's meant to be, it falls under this big umbrella of the way we understand sin. And even our illegitimate, in our illegitimate shame needs to be repented of in a little way. We need to confess it. We need to have agency over it. And we need to be able, with that agency, to turn it to God and trust Him in faith. That not our shame gets the word over us, but God's word gets the final judgment on us. That's what we need to be able to do. Today, though, our common remedy for our shame is usually to be famous. Or now to be famous is uh, now coded with, uh, I need to go viral. Okay, and so people like to go, want to go viral with YouTube videos and everything like that. It, it's, it enables us to break out of the shame of just being mundane. The shame of being finite. The shame of just being an ordinary person. We all want to be famous. So we try to escape or cover up the things about ourselves that we do not like. Things that are beyond our control. And we functionally believe that through our action we can cover up everything that we're insecure insecure about and go viral. We do it in little ways every day. And I'm not just talking about Instagram covering up. And I just don't mean like TikTok becoming famous. Oh, no, no, no. It comes down to everything. Like every time we get an A, we puff up our chest a little bit. We feel right about ourselves. Every time that our hair parts perfectly in that wonderfully Instagrammable way, we know it. Every time our boss says, good job, it's just a cover-up for our shame. There isn't enough moments to raise raise your being out of shamefulness. Only God can do that. So what does repentance look like? Repentance looks like Greta Gerwin's movie Lady Bird. Uh, Lady Bird is, uh, is, a, is a great movie. It's wonderful. Do not watch it unless you're 25 or older and, you do not, uh, and you're okay with movies that are uh, beyond like Pirates of the Caribbean and Marvel. And so if you like independent films, cool. If you don't, skip it, okay? 
Cool. Um, so Christine, it's a story about a, a high school senior who's coming to terms with who she is and learning to accept them and, and say thank you for the things the way that they are. So Christine McPherson was ashamed of her name, so she gave herself the name Ladybird. She constantly fights with her mother, which is she had another one. Makes her dad drop her off two blocks from school. She's ashamed of her hometown, Sacramento, so, she, so later you'll hear her say that she's from San Francisco. She's ashamed about the house she lives in and will lie and says she's, she lives somewhere else. She's ashamed of all the little things that she can't control, so she determines to go away for college to New York City. And in meeting a new boy... It is in this extension of gracious love that we find the antidote to the poison of shame. It empowers us to come to terms with all our quirks and with other people's quirks. It enables us to just be and enables them to just be. And so we don't have to live in fear of this illegitimate shame coming to being exposed and getting us. Why? Go ahead. Let it be exposed. The judgment that I really need is already in. I'm loved and accepted by the God of the universe. Do whatever you can. And that person that you're shaming and you're looking down upon, they're already loved by the God of the universe. What more could there be? But then there's this sh the shame of Ham. Ham, in the minds of listeners, has already had this shameful past. He's the father of Canaan. Are you kidding me? This guy's terrible. This episode ought not to be seen as the reason why Ham and his family is cursed, but rather listeners ought to see that Ham is just an overall devious person. And so the text goes, tells us that Ham has a shameful disposition from the get-go. The wording of verse 22 lets the audience know that Ham has done a serious, series of devious acts. First was this voyeurism. It isn't just that he saw that his father was naked. The way the text written is that he looked, peered. It was as if he stopped and considered this, the sight of it. He saw it. And then he goes out and he tells his brothers, 
hey, check this out. He has this moment that Germans, of course, the Germans have good words for things, called Schadenfreude, which means, like, to, uh, your pain is my gain. It is the ability to look on your competitors with delight as they experience misery. And you know you have all felt it. When that person in high school or the person at work that gets what was really coming for them, and you know it, you're like, ha, yes. And Ham does that to his father, so he breaks the fifth commandment, honor thy father and mother, mother, and you will enjoy long life in the land. Violating the fifth commandment is rejecting God's pattern for authority in the world. And so from the get-go, they see Ham is a person who's rejected God's authority in the world. So instead of graciously covering up, which a faithful person such as Shem and Japheth would do by walking backwards, it says it twice, they put a blanket over their father. Ham exposes him to ridicule. Faithful people cover the shame of others. Ashamed people mock at the shame of others. Ham's shame comes from shaming his father. Ham is guilty of schadenfreude. Your pain is my gain. It is that drive to have gain over others' misfortune. His shame begins to control him and his family. And the story of Genesis, you find out that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. They are captive to slavery, of being self-made, being self-sufficient. Notice what is missing. There's no confession. There's no remorse. There's no guilt of admission by Ham. No Ham, like the rest of us, is just trying to live the life of no regrets. Ham's shame is legitimate shame. He feels that pain of not doing what God requires. Ham's shame springs from guilt of transgression. Ham's shame is legitimate shame. It comes from what he did. And the rest of his family story is the violence through the massive cover-up effort. And so if you continue to read about Ham's family story, you'll read about Nimrod. Um, If you really hate your child, name him Nimrod. Um, Tip. Uh, Nimrod is the first king of Babel. He actually settled down in the plain of Shinar. That's where we get the Tower of Babel. And so Nimrod is the beginning of that. And so Nimrod is filled with self-importance. He's kind of self-made. He covers up his shame by saying, I am the first king. Look at me. So Nimrod appoints himself king. Then we see that Ham comes from, also from Ham comes the Egyptians and the Babylonians. But is Ham's far, is, is Ham too, too far from God's reach? No. In his story is also the story of a person named Hagar, the first slave. And she is a slave and a housemaiden for Abraham and Sarah. God promises Abraham and Sarah a child. They're not having a child. And so what does is, what is, uh, Abraham and Sarah do but do what the rest of us would do? Try to cover it up. We're like, hey, uh, let's help out God. So faithlessly, they go and try and help out God by having a child with Hagar. Hagar has a child. Hagar is then looked down on with great contempt by Sarah, and they cast her out. Not once, but twice. And both times, it is the servant slave whom God pursues in the wilderness to go get. It is the servant girl whom God will hunt down 
His grace will come after. And in whom she will be the first one to ever give God a name. She's the one who calls him El Leroy, the God who sees. See, God's arm is not too far, is not too short to save even Ham. God sees your guilt. He sees your shame. Illegitimate and legitimate shame. He doesn't wait for you. Oh no, he's pursuing you even now. And will you respond to him? So what do we do? We confess our shame. Confess it to one another. We confess it to God. That it is actually something. It isn't something to ignore. We can't cover it up with no regrets. We can't just say YOLO and it's all good. No, this agency or active, actively being able to hold it, touch it, to know it, allows us to place our faith in Jesus and to trust him. So how does grace cover our shame? Well, since I love weddings, let's go back to weddings. You make vows in weddings. You say, I take you for better or for worse in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow, until death parts us. And then you give each other rings of that commitment. And in that love for each other, they demonstrate that love covers our shame. Because on wedding day, everybody looks beautiful. On wedding day, you are wanted. On wedding day, everybody looks at you and says there's no flaw in this one. On wedding day, everyone looks at that person and is, they want them. Joyous of them. And that's what it's like when we celebrate communion. It is God's sign. His token of his love and commitment to you. His body was broken. His life was poured out. He says, I take you for better or for worse. Because on the day that Jesus died, he was stripped naked. And his shame was for all the world to see. And the dark clouds of God's judgment came over his head. And his flashing arrow, God's flashing arrows went straight into the heart of Jesus. You see, Scripture tells us not that we are a shameful bunch of losers and we better get it together. Oh no, Scripture tells us that God demonstrates his love for us and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What kind of love? What kind of grace is that? It's a love that is stronger than your shame. Your shame and everything that you're hiding is no match for the never-ending, never-giving-up love of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Our shame can't undo God's love. It can't undo his signs. Because Jesus took the arrows of the judgment into his heart. I need to let the love, his love pierce mine every day and to show that to others around me. And this meal is a sign of that love for you. Love stronger than shame. Let us pray. Almighty God, we readily confess that many of us are weighed down with shame, and I too am afraid of being known. 
but you know us, you know all our story, you know everything about us, and you still pursue us. And so the end of the story is not judgment on us. The end of the story is not never-ending slavery for us into the slave market of shame. Oh, no, the end for us is to be joined with the one whom our soul loves, our Lord Jesus. So Lord, now, as we partake of the sign of your love, I pray that we would take it in faith and that we would know this is the antidote for this is the antidote for our shame that it undoes the poison and I pray that we would be strengthened this week not to shame others and not to shame ourselves and not to cause our neighbors to live under performance to cover up their shame. But I pray that we would live freely as people of faith covering the shame of others. Because we know that Jesus took all the shame on himself in order that we could be free. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. Lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Here at Grace and Peace, we come forward for the Lord's Supper. I am the only uh, ordained person, so we have people who assist by holding. And so you'll come up. And you'll get bread. It is all gluten-free matzo during Lent uh, in, in Advent. And so at this time, we, uh, we take gluten-free matzo. You take and you eat it. There is hand sanitizer up here because uh, this is church in the age of coronavirus. Uh, and so you take and you'll eat uh, matzo. You'll be offered. Uh, there is grape juice on the outside, wine on the inside. And you'll be offered that. But this is a meal in faith. This is a meal for those who believe that God's love in the person of Jesus Christ and his broken body and his poured out blood and in his resurrection demonstrates love that is stronger than our shame. And that not even your shame can separate you from God's love and his grace. And one day, everything will be undone. If that's the confession of your heart, that if you belong to a church that professes that truth, then this meal is for you. If that is not true of you, uh, just observe and don't take. We don't want you to do anything inauthentic to where you are in your spiritual journey. But this is a meal in faith. So if this is what you proclaim, uh, would you confess with me now, our faith is signed and sealed in this sacrament. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. On the night that he was betrayed, after supper, Jesus took, or after, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper was ended, Jesus took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it as often as you do in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim his death 
until he comes again. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, meet us now in this meal. And I pray for our doubts and our shame that we would bring them to you and that you would cover us with your mercy and love. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, After you've come through, there will be people on either end who are willing to pray, especially for children. But if you have things that you need prayer for, if you're struggling, there are people to pray for you. Uh, Allow them to serve you and care for you by allowing them to pray. But would the uh, assistants please come forward as we dine with the Lord.